You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome everyone to week nine. Week nine of ten. Ten hard questions. We are doing our ninth hard question, and our tenth hard questions are going to be super hard because I've seen all of them coming in. And uh, so it'll probably end up being like 30 hard questions because we'll do 20 next week. But I'm not too worried because, because, because Mike is going to help me out. And so, I yeah, that's right. I'll just defer. I'll say, Mike. And then whatever he says, it's like. Okay, so let's get started. Um. Make sure that uh, my cyber friends, make sure that you're muted. Uh, you guys are generally pretty good, but every now and then I can hear, you know, a dishwasher or something like that. <laughs> so, okay. So just uh, before we get started, just a reminder, if you have some hard questions that you want to fire my way before we get together, if I could have those questions by Friday, I would appreciate that. <laughs> it just gives uh, gives Mike and I, I mentioned Mike, uh, it gives Mike and me some chances to uh, go over them. So we would appreciate that. Um, and this, and that's how we'll conclude. And then, um, yeah, so next week's our, our last week. And we've done well in terms of weather. This is the longest we, yeah, we haven't had snow or anything. We, I shouldn't say that, yeah. We've had nine solid weeks at least, yes. We'll see you next week. Okay, so tonight, uh, yeah, one uh, one hell of a topic that we're going to be uh, exploring tonight. It's, it's so bad. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to uh, situate our, our, our conversation in a passage, um, Revelation chapter 20. Sebastian is for you, Revelation, right? You want to Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is what John writes. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, we need your help. We need your guidance. Uh, we need your grace and your love and your truth. And so we pray that you would speak to us tonight. That you would guide our conversation on this very difficult topic. But we pray also that as we do this, we would not be detached. We would not look at this as some mildly interesting theological doctrine, uh, but it would 
affect our hearts. And so speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you may not be able to see this, and that's okay, but I'm actually going to uh, show some slides tonight. You guys online, you'll be able, hopefully, to see this. Um, let me just go from here. There we go. Um, my cyber friends, can you see that? John, can you see that? John? Mark? Yeah? Thumbs up? Yes. All good. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Oh. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Tonight's hard question is a really, really hard question. How could a loving God send people to hell? Now, as we dive into this, I want you to think about what comes to mind when you think of hell. Um, what are some images? What are some um, concepts, approaches that relate to hell? And I'm going to lay out a few of them, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk among yourselves about different ones. Uh, here's, a, here's a few images or approaches that people have when it comes to the topic of hell. One is hell is comical. It's often in comics and far side. Gary Larson was a master at this. You know, you know, we're just not reaching this guy. He's whistling away while he's doing his, his work. And, oh, man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything. Uh, nerds in hell, hot enough for you, right? So comical. Um, Mark Twain says, go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company. The other idea is this, is that um, hell is opposite. Let's see if I can go here. Hell is opposite. And I am frozen here. Oh, there we go. I'll do it this way. Hell is opposite. Hell is the inverse of heaven. And you often see that. I mean, even if you watch, um, uh, I mean, who watches this? Who remembers this? Do you remember the Flintstones, right? And whenever Fred had a, a dilemma, what would what would show up? There'd be a devil on one shoulder, an angel on the other shoulder. And the and the understanding is that heaven and hell, they're equal opposites. And which is actually a hangover of, of this philosophy called Manichaeism. But they're equally opposing forces in the universe. The other one is this, is that um, hell is only for the really, really bad people. <laughs> so, <laughs> to be fair, I got this from Mike. This is Mike's also. <laughs> so, so we, and we will tie, I mean, surely, okay, Stalin and Hitler and others, um, that's okay. The, the other view of hell is this. Is that hell? Huh, hell is where the action is. That's where the party is. Um, in in the words of the great poet Bon Scott, from the late singer of ACDC, um, "Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time." My friends are going to be there too. I'm on a. I can't believe you guys know that song. 
Oh, I'm I'm so disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I'll be going through your head all night. Yeah. Um, the other one is this picture of um, fire and brimstone, and and the and and this comes from from different guys. I mean, there's Jonathan Edwards of the 18th century and his infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he says that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell, but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Wow. This is, uh, the sermon goes on. This is a theme, you know, we're dangling over a pit of fire on a spider web that is just very precarious. Another view of hell is, um, is this is is Helen is here now? You, yes, hell is real, but it's here and now. Um, you want to talk about hell? Well, look at what's going on in the world. Look at Ukraine. That's hell. Look at what's going on in Xinjiang. That's hell. Look what's happening in Nigeria. That's hell. Uh, one person uh, who sustained third degree burns after 9-11, a Newsweek reporter commented that, quote, she had gone to hell and then slowly, painfully come back gone to hell and back and the other view is um just hell isn't real and it's become a bit of a joke in our world today um what's troopers most famous song and i close <laughs> the other one by trooper <laughs> now boys in the white bright, bright white sports car Raise a little hell, raise a little hell, raise a little hell. Yeah. Um, back in even in 1977, way back, there was an article in the paper that says, how can you take hell seriously? Hell has become so trivialized that it's lost its force as a curse. Go to hell is a suggestion that friends share. The hell it is is an exclamation of surprise and incred incredulity. Damn it is something we utter when we stub our toes. It's lost its meaning. And a lot of people tend to write off the idea of, he of uh, hell. It's a hangover from the olden days. And the majority of North Americans believe in heaven, even those who don't believe in God. Most people believe in heaven. Um, back in 2003, only 1% of people think that they might ever go to hell. And so for a lot of people, when they look at Jonathan Edwards and some of these things that are said, they think, man, this is just kind of a, a quaint doctrine from the olden days. And we kind of shake our heads and say, isn't it funny how people used to think about things? Well, what I'd like to do is I want to ask you, um, I want to ask you if I can get on to stop share. No, oh, I can't get out of Oh, there we go. Uh, stop share. Um, what I want to do is I want to ask you around your tables, which one of those images um, comes to mind the most for you? 
when you think about hell. And maybe there'd be a different image, different, different idea. But uh, which which one of those approaches, images, uh, come to mind when you hear the word hell? Okay, so just talk among yourselves for a few minutes. Now, don't be making a count. I believe this, and you know, just say this is what comes to mind, right? Right. As everything else, we need to be kind and gracious to one another. Okay, here we go. We go. Let's let's carry on. Now, actually, let me ask you. What? What? Uh, like, so online we have pictures of, um, say, they say a, a guy named Dante in the 14th century really shapes how how we look at heaven and hell in particular. Um, and so Dante lived in the 14th century. Wrote this poem and broke it in three parts. Uh, and the one on Inferno is probably the most famous. Yeah, and. Um, and that really does shape our imagination in terms of what what hell looks like. Uh, though interestingly, most people think Dante talks about fire and brimstone. But if you actually read Inferno, the lower down you go into the pit of hell, the darker it gets and the colder it gets. It's actually cold. You, you get cold. And the more isolated you get. That's an interesting picture. What else comes to mind? Yeah. Demons, yeah. So maybe fire with with pitchforks, kind of, yeah, that that picture. Yeah. And that is kind of an influence of Dante, really. Um, it is an influence of Dante. Anything else come to mind? Those images, most of our understanding of what hell looks like, the typical pictures, like in the far side and that, are shaped by Dante yeah, in the 14th century. That's how influential he is. Yeah. But he has a story about Oh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, he, and he's parched. Yeah, so that is, yeah, and that is a, an image you get in uh, in scripture too. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Right. Good. Yeah. So hopelessness, isolation. Um yeah, and, and, and you're and it's eternal too, right? Yeah, without hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You want to talk about purgatory? <laughs> this is going to be enough for us, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's next. Well, I, you could send me that uh, question yeah. if you want. You don't have to. <laughs> uh, but next week, because that is an important question, the question of purgatory. And Lori, you make a good point that a lot of our images of, I, I would say, Lori, would you say um, that our understanding of Satan in terms of being the smooth talker, like that, that uh, silver tongue deceiver is really shaped by Milton. Would you say? Um, yeah, but you know, in in that scene where he he is tossed down, it's you know he talks about the red fiery stretched oh. out stretched out huge on the red fiery boiling sea, just trying to find somewhere to land. Pretty dramatic. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much uh, Milton was influenced by Dante. Um, you know, different traditions, obviously, but yeah, that, that's fascinating. Yeah, Lori's our resident English teacher, so that's good. That's helpful. Yeah. Well, for many people, the concept of hell is very difficult to take. Um, 
largely because it seems incongruent to the love and the goodness of God. And so, therefore, our framing question for tonight's talk, how could a loving God send people to hell? And you can ask these kind of questions. You could say, why would a perfectly good God create a world in which some would be damned? Um, why would God create a world in which he knew some or many would be eternally damned to hell? This whole idea of hell seems inconsistent with the love of God. And so we run into a similar logical quandary that we looked at last week when we were looking at suffering. And it goes something like this. We believe that God is all-powerful. We believe that God is all-good. Someone all-powerful would accomplish whatever he desires. Someone all-good would not wish anyone to suffer in a place such as hell. Therefore, hell's existence is incompatible with God being both good and powerful. So the question is, which is it? Is God good but not powerful? Or is he not powerful? That's a serious question. So let's dive into this. All right, we're going to dive right into it. Let's let's go. Uh, and it's easy to get muddled, but way, the way I approach this question is like the way I do all the time. Uh, I've said this before. I'm not a deist, not a theist. I'm a Christian. And so the starting point is Jesus for me and for all Christians, <laughs> not just me. Um as a Christian, my starting point is Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means. And our Christian faith is rooted in a person and an event, right? Person and an event. The person is Jesus Christ. The event is his life, death, and resurrection. And so we need to take what Jesus says about himself and what he did very seriously and work our way out from that. So what does Jesus teach on this topic? Well, here's the thing. Jesus teaches that hell exists. In fact, Jesus um, taught more about hell than Paul in the New Testament. Um, He mentions hell again and again through the Gospels. Mentions it 12 times. Uh, We learn about this picture of hell even in the Apocalypse in the book of Revelation. We read in this passage I read earlier, we read about books being opened. There's a book of book of life. People are judged according to what they had done. And anyone who wasn't in the book of life was cast into a lake of fire. That's the image that we get in Revelation chapter 20. So what does the Bible say about hell? Let's keep going. Well, for starters, there seems, there seems, and we can't get into this too much, but there seems to be a difference between a couple of words. One of the words that's often used, that's used as a synonym for hell is the word Hades, actually. And Hades, um, I think there's a bit of a difference. Sometimes it's, and and there's some debate on this, but Hades, for the most part, seems to be like um, a New Testament equivalent to the idea of shale, which you read about in the Old Testament, which is a place, basically a holding place for the dead. It's not a final judgment, but a holding place for the dead. Okay, now we're going to leave that. Let's not go down that road yet. I'm just explaining the different terms. So Hades is ambiguous. So hell, what does hell mean in the Bible? Well, it seems to mean, and we'll look at some of the words, Hell is like an ending point or an outcome. It's a result of when you reject God 
and therefore you reject the good. It is a result of turning your back on the salvation that Jesus offers people. If you push God away, you push life away. And when you push life away, what is left is hell. Hell is the outcome of a trajectory that moves away from the one who is good. Think about that. If you move away from the author of life, where do you turn? Where are you turning? If you're moving away from life, where are you turning? You're turning towards non-life. And so hell is an ending point or an outcome for those who just turn their back on the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Secondly, hell is described as a fire. And so you, you do get the fiery language, you know, the lake of fire. And you got that, that parable of Lazarus. And so what is fire all about? Well, fire in the Bible is often used as uh, a picture of, of, of purifying. Uh, it's also a picture of judgment. And it's a picture of testing. You burn away all the stuff and see what you're made of, right? Burn away all the, all the stuff, all the dross, right? And so hell is a realization. Hell is a realization of all that is hidden in our hearts. It burns everything away and we're exposed for who we are. So that's another image. The other image is hell is a kind of a dump. Um, and it's, it's where you dump and destroy what is bad. So it's like it's like a garbage dump that we burn up the garbage. And the word that's used often for hell is this word Gehenna. And Jesus typically refers to hell as Gehenna and makes reference. Uh, the word Gehenna is a reference to this valley of Hinnom, which was a place you read about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's a place where idolatrous practices took place. It was a, an accursed valley. It was a horrible place, place of loathing. And it became a symbol for this picture of judgment and one's, one's final end. And so in the Bible, when, we, when evil is taken out of the good place and thrown far away, where it is destroyed, it's this picture of Gehenna. And uh, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. No, H G E H E N N A. Yeah, N N A. So hell, along with death, are enemies. That's the other picture. They are under the dominion of malevolent powers, bent on destroying, but also limited in what they can do. So here's the point. So far, Jesus teaches about hell. And if you take Jesus seriously, then you need to take what he says seriously. When Jesus mentions hell, he does so with utter seriousness. He describes it as a destination, a trajectory of all those who rebel against their creator, who reject him. And so hell is a place, it is a destination to be avoided at all costs. So it's not very pleasant, which brings us back to our question. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? And I'll tell you, and I'm and I'm so glad to see so many people out tonight because this is a topic that we need to think carefully about. And a lot of Christians 
do not think carefully about, well, anything. <laughs> I'm quite discouraged by the state of Christian wrestling with ideas these days. So, sorry, I shouldn't bring that in. <laughs> I was quite discouraged. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they're like, yeah, nobody ever talks about, you're talking about this this church and, and he's saying at the church. Yeah. Nobody even cares about any of these big questions. I'm like, and th this is the staff. No, not the church. The, the, the pastoral staff. They're like, ah, it doesn't matter. And so anyhow, I'll probably have to edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mention the church. So yeah. Well, how can a loving God and, and not that what I'm going to say is going to necessarily be the, the, the great, but I'm, uh, this is a question that I've been wrestling with over, over the years. And uh, years ago, I don't know if any of you were in the class, but I taught a class on um, heaven, hell, and everything in between. Remember that class? And we had fun in that class uh, because we talked about everything. We talked about ghosts. We talked about all sorts of things. And it was a very complicated but fun class. I know some of you guys were in that class. Um, and yeah, so we looked at this a long time ago. So let's lean in. How could a good and loving God send anyone to hell? Well, what do, what do we mean when we say God is good? That's that's our starting point. What do we mean that God is good? Well, we usually mean that God is good. It means he's kind. He's self-sacrificial. He's benevolent. He's forgiving. He's compassionate, slow to anger, and loving. Okay, well, if God is all those things, how could he send anyone to hell? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? It doesn't sound very loving. But here's the thing. God's goodness involves all those things, but it also involves his holiness. That is part of God's goodness. His purity, his cleanness, and his justice. That's all part of the goodness of God. All these things go together when we're talking about his goodness. And so God's justice is an essential part of his goodness. So how can he be good? How could you be good without being just? The two have to go together. How can you be good without being pure? And another thing, God's goodness also means that in the end, he is committed to making all things right. If the if you know if in the very end things don't work out and the things are still a mess, that's a problem. God is committed to making all things right because he's just and he's determined to make things the way they ought to be. And so if you look, you don't have to be a Christian to do this. You look around the world, you see there's something wrong with the world. The world is not as it should be. Something is deeply broken about the world. And when we see the suffering in this world, our hearts cry out, God. This is not the way it should be. Make it right. Will you not make it right? And the fact that things are not as they're supposed to be means that God will make all things right again. And that's the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is that it begins with this great promise, and it ends with this promise being fulfilled. And the new heavens and the new earth where God will be with his people, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. So, so here's the, here's the point. It's because God is good. It is because God is good that he cannot turn a blind eye to evil. And that is why there's hell. Let's unpack that. 
But let me ask you this. Could it be that part of making everything right in the end, God reveals what's going on inside of our hearts and judges us in a way that is fair and just? Could it be that the whole understanding of hell is rooted in the goodness of God? And we don't see this because we don't realize how holy God is, how perfect he is, and how just he is. And so let me say something that's kind of controversial. That hell may be a good thing. Ah, yeah, see, that got your attention. Hell may be a good thing in the in the big picture. We'll, we'll see. All right. Okay, you guys keep track, okay? Don't, don't go off on any side stories or anything like that. All right. Okay, why is hell, we'll say, a good thing? One, it uh, takes your choices seriously. If, if, if hell is an outcome of your choice, of people's choices that they make in life, if it's a result of choices that we make, that means our freedom and our choices are taken very seriously by God. And you think about it, in our culture today, the two things that are championed more than anything else are autonomy and the freedom to choose. Well, Jesus gives us autonomy and the freedom to choose. And so the doctrine of hell actually reaffirms our moral responsibility. The books that are open at judgment say, hey, this is what th these are the choices that you made that you made for good or for ill. And so people desire dignity to have their decisions taken seriously. Well, God says, I give you that dignity and I take your choices very seriously. But you have to realize your choices have consequences. And you think about without judgment without hell what are the ramifications for the choices we make and if you prefer not to talk about hell prefer there not to be a hell how are you taking moral choice very seriously if it doesn't matter what choices you make if there's no consequences for the decisions you make then how does this square with the picture of god now, some people say, well, I don't believe in God in the first place. But here's the thing. Even if you don't believe in God, does it not resonate with just being human? I mean, God, let's leave God outside of the equation. When people do something wrong, when you have a serial killer who gets away with it and dies at a ripe old age, when you have a child molester, Nobody ever catches it. When you have a tyrant who carries out on, on, unspeakable evils, when you have a person who lives a life of steady awfulness and gets away with it, is there not something inside of you as a human being saying, that should not be the case? I mean, that was a starting point for me in my journey towards Jesus. This sense of, is there such a thing as right and something that is just that exists outside of me? You see, hell 
it, it shows us that there, there are eternal consequences to the choices we make. And, and, and you also have to think about this way. If in your whole life, let's say you didn't give a rip about God, you don't believe in God, you don't care about God, you don't care about living his way, you, have, you want to have nothing to do with Jesus, then how would God be respecting your choice if he says, ha, tough, you're coming to heaven whether you like it or not? How would that be respectful of the choices you make? You want to have nothing to do with Jesus. Ah, too bad you're coming in. Come on. Eternal life for you. How would that be respectful to you as a human being? Being made in God's image. No, if you say, and this is what C.S. Lewis says, it's a great line. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, all right, thy will be done. All that are in hell, Lewis says, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And so hell is consistent, I think, with our own revulsion towards evil. And so when we see, you know, these, these horrible things, these, these, these war crimes, children being abused, poor being oppressed, women being raped, people dehumanized through torture and war. It is a proper reaction for you and I to say those who commit those wrongs should face justice, should face judgment. And you know what? This picture of hell is actually our hope in the sense that, yeah, those people who get away with it, they will not get away with it. That in the end, all shall be made right. And does not our hearts long for that? And so what hell does is that it removes evil and shows that evil will have no lasting place in God's creation. And I think hell actually helps us make sense of the world that we're living in. It is a place where evil will be bound once and for all. It's a it's a, an inescapable prison from which, again, there's no escaping. And I will often say this. I've said this many times. If you don't like the doctrine of hell, what is a better plan? Now, keep in mind, what do you do with Hitler? What do you do with the Stalins of this world? What do you do with the Charles Mansons? Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, guys like Hitler and Stalin, well, they're really bad. Well, of course, they deserve hell. Yes, yes, they deserve hell. But then where, where do you draw the line? What criteria do you use? Based on what? How bad do you have to be in order to tip the scales to actually end up in hell? And that's where we need to pay attention to what Scripture teaches us, because Scripture is very clear on this. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christianity teaches us that God is our creator. And as our creator, he sees our thoughts. He sees every one of them. <laughs> I, I read this this week, that, and I totally agree. Nobody would be my friend if they could see all my thoughts. 
Like nobody, even my closest friend would not be my friend if they could see all my thoughts. Am I alone in this? <laughs> the reality is that God knows our hearts and he knows our pretense. He knows what we say and what we think about. And so scripture, you have to realize, lays out very clearly, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are sinners and there are saved sinners. All of us are mortally affected by sin, so much so that we, we will die from it. The wages of sin is death, scripture teaches us. And so I'm making a case to say that there's a logic to damnation. It takes our choices seriously. It resonates with our own heart's cry against injustice and evil that we see in the world. It resonates at our desire that some people should not get away with evil in the world and that things need to be made right in the end, okay? So why don't we like the idea of hell? Well, I think partly because we underestimate the power of evil and sin in our world and in our hearts. And we often think that God ought to forgive us, not the bad guys, but he ought to forgive us for, for my, my minor misdemeanors, right? My, uh, my missteps. And the other thing is we're, we're sentimental about forgiveness. We think, well, God should forgive. My grandmother always forgave me. Why wouldn't God forgive me? And we don't see the cost of forgiveness. And we don't see the objective problem of evil and sin in the world. That evil damages the cosmos and everything needs to be restored. A debt is built up that must be paid. And I think one of our problems is that we don't take the cross very seriously. We don't take the cross very seriously. I was at a conference recently and they were talking about, they tried to share the gospel. It was a conference where there's a lot of Christians and non-Christians. It, it, it's kind of this nice conference I was at. Um, and they tried to share the gospel, but they never mentioned the cross. You know, if you've done some bad things, just ask for forgiveness and God will forgive you. Do you want to pray? I'm like, <laughs> I didn't say anything. Guy would have got in trouble. But uh, man, because we have to look at what, what is a cross all about? At the center of our faith is a cross. And it's a beautiful picture because what when you, when you understand all this and you understand what, what God the Father did in sending his son, to make all things right, to pay a debt that we could never pay. Wow. And, you know, we read about God's wrath being poured out against our sin, and we recoil. We hate the word wrath. Seems like old-fashioned language. And yet the language we read about the cross includes this idea of Jesus taking a cup, the cup, and that's a picture of God's wrath against our sin. And Jesus drinks the cup that we should have drank. And he drinks down the righteous anger and judgment of God against sin. And, and we're reminded just how much God loves us in this. And we're reminded that God's love and his judgment cannot be pulled apart. Because again, you think about the killing fields in Cambodia. You think about the Holocaust. You think about people, people being beaten up because of the color of their skin. We get angry at that. We get angry at that. But behind that anger is love. Because we love our neighbor. We say, you should not do this to, the, to a person. And the more we love people, the more angry we become when there's injustice. 
If you don't love, you're not going to care about injustice. Well, who cares? It's not my business. And so love and justice go together. Now, I want you to imagine this love-motivated anger was expressed on a cosmic scale. That's a picture of God's wrath against sin. And Good Friday shows how seriously are the consequences of sin and evil and how seriously God takes us. Because of our sin, someone needed to suffer and die. And the mystery of the cosmos, the mystery of who God is, is demonstrated on the cross. For God was willing through his son to do all that was necessary to rescue us. And that is why the gospel is such good, good, good news. And so on the cross, a debt is paid. And now you're faced with a choice. Who is going to pay the debt of your sin? You got a choice. Either Jesus is going to pay for it, or you're going to pay for it. But a payment needs to be made. God is infinite, holy, and just, and good. Any sin against him, however small, is infinite in scope. And that's why the church for centuries has been saying, Jesus saves. And sometimes we hear that, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, he saves you. And we just kind of, we grow immune to it. But it's huge. Think about what it means. And here's the thing. If you take hell out of the Bible, what in the world is the cross all about? If you take hell out of the equation, you don't need the cross. The cross means nothing. The incarnation, unnecessary. None of it matters. If there's there's no hell, then it doesn't matter how you live. What you end up with is a Christian faith. If you take hell out of the equation, what you're left with is a picture of Jesus who is maybe a good model for a nice life, and we follow him, and he'll make our lives slightly better than it was before. He's a modest program for self-improvement. Now, the other thing about the cross is that we need to remember that God can see everything in our hearts. He's created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows... (laughs) He knows what you think. He knows what you've said. He knows everything about you and all your foibles and all those things that you think and you shouldn't be thinking and saying that you shouldn't do it. He he knows. And here's the thing. He still loves you. He, He can see all that stuff and he still loves you. Which is a picture of God's love. He's a running father who runs to the prodigal son. He's the God who comes after us. He's the hound of heaven. Like I remember when my son was just little, Matthew, when he was like uh, two years old. And and many of you have probably had this experience if you have kids. Um, We lost him. (laughs) We're at the the, uh, department store. That Sears, remember there's a store called Sears back in the olden days. Simpson Sears, that's even the older, older days, yeah. Um, yeah, we we're at Sears, and Matthew, uh, for fun, he he wanted to hide, you know, you have those uh, circles of coats or you know, shirts, well, he wanted to go inside it. 
And so I was talking with Karen. I said, where's Matthew? She said, I don't know. I thought you had him. I said, I don't have him. And have you ever had that? And that panic, that panic is like, somebody's come and stole him. I can't, you know, you know, it's like, and we're like, Matthew. And it, it seemed like an hour. It was maybe a minute. And Matthew comes out from inside these jackets. Hey, I'm like, and what do you want to do? But you also want to hug him, right? You want to draw him because he was lost and you're so joyful that he's found. And this, it's this picture that God, God knows everything about us. He knows everything about us and all of our foibles. And yet he loves us. I think that's really powerful. Now, what I like to do at this stage, because I've given you, I've given you a lot. So I've given you a logic for help. So I want to see how this sits with you around your table. Now, don't get into a debate, please. Don't, no debates, right? Like, unless it's a very friendly debate, but like, I want you to give each other opportunities to share what you're feeling or how this sits with you. And it could be, I'm puzzled or I'm just compelling. I'm not sure about this. Um, and, and, and just give each other space to express what they want. All right. Don't be trying to correct anybody. Is that okay? So I'm just going to give you a few minutes to do that. And then we'll regather in. Okay. So same with you guys. How does this all sit with you? You might've been all talking about it online while I've been teaching. <laughs> Okay, so um, just very quickly, what what are what are some things that have resonated or questions that have emerged or um, so far, or do you want to save that to the end? Yeah, Angie. Of course, yeah. Right. Um, really good arts and great things, but they don't know Jesus. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. They almost need love and not They almost the opposite. They need more love than we would. That's right. Yeah. So, what about those who, um, you know, maybe have, have, have never heard or had the opportunity or even have the mental capacity to respond to Jesus? Uh, what about people who've lived very good lives, but they've never known Jesus and what happens to that, like in all that. So that's a, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. One of the things I would say, one of the things I would say in, in response to this is we have to remember that God is not a mechanism. And that the gospel is not a system. So if I say these words, then God has to forgive me because I said I trust in Jesus. Therefore, my sins are forgiven. I go to heaven. That's the way it works. 
It's like, you know, these, these chains being pulled and, and this is how things work out. If I do not see God is personal. And so how he responds to you. So somebody, let's say, who does not have the mental capacity to even understand or respond to Jesus. What do we know about God? We know that um, he will do what is right and what is just out of his love. And so we entrust, we entrust people into God's hands. And we trust that God will do what is right. Because here's the thing, whatever happens, whatever happens, there's not even a question of, oh, that's not fair. There can't be. If, if, if our picture of God is correct, that God is good, that he is just, and that he's also made everything possible for us to be reconciled to him. There's a bunch of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, right? What about those who's never heard? And usually it's like, what about those, you know, some village in Africa? And I usually say, well, they've heard because there are more Christians in Africa than there are in Canada. What you mean to say is, what about those in Westwood Plateau? That's what you mean to say, because that's where the gospel has not made much penetration, nor Burke Mount. Um, what's that? <laughs> oh, Don. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, so. What about those who've never heard? Well, it's not like God's, ha, you never heard, so too bad for you. We don't know. We know that he's good. We know that he's kind. But we also only have what scripture's taught us. And so for us, the living, we have great impetus to share the good news of Jesus. We have great impetus because what we want to say is not that, hey, trust in Jesus and you don't go to hell. No. Trust in Jesus. He's the author of life, and your life will work the way it's supposed to work when you orient it, your life with Jesus. It's for your life to flourish. You're not just trying to avoid hell. It's about the flourishing of life. And so God is not a machine. That's why when I, I do many, many, many funerals, and I will never say someone's going to hell. I would never say that. It's not my call, thanks be to God. But what I do say is, look, we the living, we the living know that God has provided his son. And so when we turn our lives to Jesus, we experience sins forgiven. We experience reconciliation with God, the very presence of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us into people that we were never before, and that we could actually live out his goodness and his presence in this world to make this world more and more like the kingdom of God. That's what I would say whenever I do a, a funeral. And so and so my trust is, is in God's character and who he is as a person. Um, the gospel, again, is not a system that we figure out. And the problem is, is as evangelicals, and that's my tradition, and I love being an evangelical. I have nothing wrong but one of the downsides is that we try to make everything like like a, if this then this if this then this then this then this we try to make it so orderly and we miss out the wonder and the mystery of who God is okay um yeah but that's and so i i mean we could talk a lot about um what about those who've never heard but the, there's a lot of 
questions about that. Um, there's different, there's different, what's that? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, if God is, is sovereign and, and, and there's stories, I mean, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit. Maybe I'll get in trouble because this is all going to be recorded. Uh, um, but I do think that, like, I I talk to enough missionaries who've been around the world who talk about places that have never heard the gospel. So they go to places that never heard the gospel, and they hear that within, within their uh, folk religion of a particular people group, there is this vision of who God is. And there is this vision, this hope that God himself would, would become one of them to bring about some, some kind of change. So the, there's, there's actually the basis within, uh, within, um, within sometimes a, a folk religion that sets the, the, uh, the foundations for, for people to hear the gospel. I hear those stories all the time. Um, there's a famous book called um, Brusco by Bruce, Bruce Olson, who is a missionary to South, uh, South America. And he, he tells that story as well. Um, so I think there's something there. So, I mean, God, again, he's not a system. And God is not unjust. He's completely just. And he's completely loving. And so we need to trust in him in this. But what we do know is that the reality of hell is taught by Jesus and that there's a logic to it. I think there's, there's a strong logic to it. It's it, it, it plays in consistency with our intuition, but it also plays in consistency with our, the way our hearts rage against injustice and people getting away with it. So I think that's, that's something we need to take into consideration, but we need to know that hell is, is, um, Hell is not primarily a place. It's not like, you know, go to hell, this, this location that's located in the center of the earth. Um, it's, hell is, 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 is shorthand for being devoid of God. We know, we, I love uh, the way Rebecca McLaughlin puts this. She says, if Jesus is a bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, Loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is a good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. So how do we respond to all this? Well, I think as Christians, one... We never delight in hell. And now I say that and you're like, well, of course not. <laughs> yeah, no, I know many Christians who delight in the doctrine of hell for all the wrong reasons. Well, they're happy that somebody died. You know, hey, you know, I shared the gospel with them. They never listened to me. So, hey, they're going to go to hell. That's that's that's. And it's like they're not even thinking about the seriousness of what they're saying. That sort of thing. Um, we need to recognize that we are all in the same boat. Actually, we're not all in the same boat. We are all dead on the in the bottom of the sea. And we all need to be resuscitated. We all need to be made alive. And that's what Jesus does. We're all, but for the grace of God, there go I. We need to be honest about hell. We have a mission. And part of that mission is being brutally honest about hell. And here's the thing. If you don't want to talk about hell, what are you saying by your silence? 
You're like, hey, do whatever you want. It's no big deal. You're not being faithful to what Jesus has taught. Our mission is urgent. As one guy put it, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I love that line. We're, we're called to be faithful. Whether people accept the gospel is not up to us. Our job is to be obedient and to tell people, hey, look, this is where you want. This is where life is found. And we need to make good choices. We need to make good choices. How we live matters. The choices we make matter. Because the books are going to be open and all of our choices, all the things that we've done is all going to be exposed. And you're going to be, and, and, and you're going to have to give an account for how you lived your life. So how you live your life matters. Now have at the end of your notes, the, but what about, well, what about my grandmother? She in hell, my cousin, my son, my, you know, again, the Christian life is not a system. God is not a machine. He's personal and he's just, and he's good. And so the question I always ask is this, where is your life heading? What is the trajectory of your life? And I often hear people say, they'll often come up to me and say that, that question, what about those in this country? What about those who've never heard? I'm like, great question, great question. But you've heard. For you to ask that question, you've heard. So let's put that on the burner for a second. How are you going to respond? Because you've heard, you know the story. So is this a smoke screen because you don't want to talk about it? Because you've heard. So how are you going to respond? And then we can talk about this for sure. There are lots of churches now asking that question at the end of the service. I know the church we go to when after every service. What do they ask? If they want to accept you. Oh, uh, respond to Jesus. Yeah, no, we do. Yeah. Lots come Do they? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're in deepest darkest Vancouver or Coquitlam. So it's uh it's a little hard slogging over here. Yeah. So what I'm gonna do is I'm going to wrap up our time on recording and then we'll open it up to questions. Okay. Does sound good? Because I may not be able to answer the questions and it's not good to have that recorded. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> All right. So let's let's close things up here. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.